It's great to be back with you this morning. And uh, I looked looked online on the website to see what you guys had been hearing from the Word recently and saw that you were in Luke chapter 2, and I thought I'd continue our way through Luke chapter 2. And so this morning, uh, we're going to be looking at Luke chapter 2, verses 40 through 52. So you want to turn there in your scriptures. Also, if you're wondering who I am, uh, my name is Oliver Pierce. I'm the campus minister, RUF campus minister, campus ministry of this church's denomination, the PCA, uh, over at Wofford, just just a 20, 15 minutes away. Um, but yeah, thankful, thankful to be here, thankful for your church's prayers, for our ministry, and um, yeah, uh, let's uh, look at this passage. I'll read it for us and pray for us, and we'll begin to consider what the Lord is saying to us. So again, Luke chapter 2, verses 40 through 52. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, And the favor of God was upon him. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when Jesus, and when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking questions. And all who heard were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them And came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Let me pray for the teaching of God's word. Father, we praise you that you are not a God who remains silent that you've spoken to us in many times, in many ways, you've revealed all we need to know about who you are and why we've been created and what you are doing in the world to fix the sin and brokenness that has entered through the fall. And so we ask that as we consider this passage, uh, you might renew our minds, you might change us, you might help us 
see more of who Jesus is and what that means for us. So give us eyes to see, ears to hear by your spirit. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, what's one story from your childhood that really sums up who you are? Or a really, really memorable, memorable one. Uh, maybe it's hard for you to remember that. Maybe if you asked your parents if you were able to do that. Uh, they could tell you, I'm sure. I, I actually asked my mom this question recently. Like, is there any stories from my childhood that just really stick with you that kind of uh, just make you think of, of who I am? And some of them were pretty good, maybe, you know, flattering in some ways. Um, but some were just even outright shocking. Uh, I have to share one of those. My favorite one that my mom reminded me of was when I was in the sixth grade. I was going through a lot emotionally and mentally just as a middle schooler, as many middle schoolers do. And I'd also made friends with a, a, a group of kids from our neighborhood that were a little bit crazy. And my parents were kind of concerned about me, and so they, they actually had me go start seeing a counselor. And after the first meeting, we came home, and my parents realized that I had stolen the nameplate from the counselor's table. Don't, don't worry, it's not, it's not saying I'm still a kleptomaniac today. Another better story uh, later on uh, in my teenage years, I actually got to go on a trip with my family uh, to France, and at one point we were visiting this beautiful monastery, uh, and there was just outside these beautiful rows of lavender that we had a picnic in, but I, I was curious about what, you know, what was inside the monastery, I wanted to go in there and explore, and so... I left my family to do that, and, and my mom warned everyone, he, he's going to get lost in there, like not just physically, like mentally, We're, he's just going to forget what time it is. And that's exactly what happened. Three hours later, I walk out of the monastery, and uh, everyone is just completely furious with me. They're like, what were you doing? Where were you? But that was really revealing about something, my curiosity and my, my tendency to get lost in my mind. Well, what if we ask the same question of Jesus? If we, if we said to the writers of Scripture, to God himself, what's one story that sums up who Jesus is? It seems like there should be a lot of interesting stories about Jesus' childhood. I mean, he is the Son of God. He did so many miraculous things. And we actually find some of those stories in extra-biblical books that were not put in the Bible for good reason. One of, one of those uh, writings that was re rejected as inauthentic by the early church was the, the infancy gospel of Thomas. And, and there we find stories of, of Jesus breathing life into birds and then that he made out of clay and they start flying. Or he, he curses a boy and then he just falls dead for like, you know, saying the wrong thing to him. Or he resurrects a friend who falls from a roof or heals a man who accidentally chops off his foot with an axe. Those are interesting, maybe even plausible events given Jesus' divine nature. You might expect to find that in the Bible. But Luke, in his careful, researched gospel, he records no such events. The only story in Luke, in the whole of God's 
revealed word that we really have about Jesus's childhood is this scene we've just read from Luke chapter 2. Luke could have written about a number of things. The Holy Spirit could have moved the gospel writers to include any moment from Jesus' childhood, but this is the only one we get. And it's because it's exactly what we need to see. And I think, especially around this time of Christmas, as we're asking this question, what child is this? This passage is revealing something unique about Jesus, God with us, Emmanuel. And I think there's three things that Luke wants us to see in his recounting of this event. First, the shock of Jesus' identity. Two, the security of Jesus' identity. And lastly, the sharing of Jesus' identity. So first, the shock of Jesus' identity. Again, I think many people would expect those Infancy gospel narratives are are what Jesus' childhood was like, that he was doing all these miracles left and right, that he had superhero-like powers. But that's not what Luke focuses on. That's not what Luke's interested in. The first shock of Jesus' identity is actually how normal he is. And that's what Luke is highlighting at the beginning and at the end of this narrative, that Jesus grew and became strong and he was filled with, with wisdom, that he increased in wisdom and in stature. I mean, this is pretty normal run in the mill if we think about our own lives, our kids' lives. But for Jesus, the, the Son of God, he grew, not just physically, but in wisdom. I, I thought Jesus was God. Why would he need to increase in wisdom? Luke is really highlighting how much Jesus lived for us and united himself with our humanity. Jesus was fully human. He was not just human in appearance. In the words of the Westminster Shorter Catechism, he took to himself a true body and a reasonable soul. He was fully human, as human as you and me. And so he had to learn like we do. He didn't just upload biblical knowledge into his brain from heaven like Neo from the Matrix. Look what he's doing in the temple. He's listening. He's asking questions. He's like a kid in a Sunday school class learning. And I think it's easy to... to, Gloss over this, but it's so profound. Jesus not only died for our sins, he lived perfectly to be our righteousness through the whole course of the human life. It wasn't just in the big, important moments of his ministry when he faced temptation with the devil. From day one, he was our righteousness. Growing up, learning to get along with his siblings, learning to obey his parents, facing all the challenges of moving into adulthood that all of us had to face and are facing, maybe. Jesus went through all of this. He didn't get to skip over any of it. But at the same time, it's clear that even as his ordinariness is shocking to us because of his divine nature, there's something 
else shocking about Jesus in his human nature? As he's sitting there, as he's learning from these top religious scholars in the temple, they're amazed with his answers once he starts talking. He takes a posture of a learner, but even as a 12-year-old boy, he has astonishing understanding. Why? Is this his divine nature sneaking back in? I mean, have you ever wondered why it's so hard to just, especially nowadays, to just sit still and read through a book for an hour or two? Why, why you find yourself drawn to, to scroll on social media? Why, why even really brilliant people can disagree and have really great arguments for both of their positions on a multitude of topics. Our minds are fallen. Our our brains don't work as God fully intended them to. Something has come into all of us and disrupted. And so our short attention spans, that's not a feature of humanity that's a bug. Our our inability to correctly interpret God's word that's tied to sin, that that has just spread like this disease through our bodies and minds. But Jesus did not have this. Jesus was born without sin. His, His mind was incredibly sharp. At 12 years old, he already understood the scriptures better than these 67-year-old scholars that had been studying at the heart of Israel. And so he's come to save and renew even our minds that have been bruised and broken by the fall. But not only are the teachers shocked with Jesus, once Jesus' parents find them, find him, they're dumbfounded as well. I mean, they're already, I imagine, if you had lost your child for three days, they're really shook up, and they're so astonished where they found him. And we might wonder, uh, why are they so surprised? Had they forgotten who Jesus was? Had they realized how... Forgotten how special this child was, that angels appeared to them and explained that he was going to be the one to redeem Israel. Mary knew she had never been with a man intimately, and Jesus was born. Something was special about this child. Would it not be shocking to find him in the temple, or would that not be expected? What's going on here? I, I think... What had happened over time is that Jesus' parents had domesticated him. Day after day, life with Jesus growing up probably seemed pretty normal. It wasn't like these infancy gospel stories with miracles happening left and right. And they had probably come to enjoy the ordinariness of their family life. Jesus was fitting into their preconceived understanding of how the world worked so far. And I think many of us, especially that have just been in the church from day one, we can do the exact same thing with Jesus. He's so close, so familiar, we domesticate him. 
I mean, how much more is this true during Christmas? Because now more people are paying attention to Jesus, thinking about his birth than than the rest of the year. But the Jesus they're paying attention to, it's a domesticated Jesus. It's a Jesus who helps us, gives us an excuse to celebrate with family and give gifts. He's a Jesus who fits into our world and our agenda. And I think this is what we do. We go to church day after day. We are good people. We do the respectable religion thing. And we can lose a sense of who Jesus is. We become too familiar with him and forget how radical it is that he came into the world. But the grace is Jesus is going to come in and he's going to blow that domesticated image of him up. He's going to shock us. He's going to do that even more as the rest of this gospel goes on. Luke is really preparing his readers for that, that Jesus is going to shock and confuse those even closest to him. But the real shock is not just what Jesus is doing and that his parents find him in the temple. The greatest shock is actually how he responds to his parents' distress. In verse 49, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? Jesus calls God his father. This may seem really commonplace to us, But for any Israelite nearby that would have heard these words from Jesus' mouth, their jaw would have dropped. One scholar put it this way, in all the long biblical record, not even Moses who had built the temple, or built the tabernacle, sorry, not, not even David who had longed to build the temple, nor Solomon who had actually built it, No prophet, no king or commoner, not the most exalted of them, had ever referred to the tabernacle or temple as my father's house. This child was conscious of a relationship with God that none had conceived of, let alone expressed before. And with that relationship, a compelling devotion, I had to be in my father's house. Jesus would be the first rabbi ever to personally call God Father. And so we really shouldn't be surprised that Jesus' parents are confused by that statement in verse 50. Calling God Father. That's way too personal and intimate. And this shock leads us to our second point, another revelation present here the security of Jesus' identity. Think about that response. How does it sound to you? To To me, it sounds very settled. Jesus is firm, but he's at peace. He's not rattled by his parents, but he isn't just dismissing them. He's very gently rebuking them. But he is saying something radical. He's telling his parents, I have a relationship that supersedes our relationship. 
My, my relationship with God the Father, it relativizes all other relationships. Pleasing you is not my top priority. And yet Jesus doesn't just say, yeah, I don't need you anymore. Like, go away. Like, I'm going to just become a scholar here in the temple. What does verse 51 say? He went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. He knows he is the very son of God, that he has the love and affection of his heavenly father, the God of the universe, that he has lived in perfect communion with God the father from eternity, that all things were created through him and for him. He could just as easily move on from his parents at this point, but instead he chooses to submit to them. And I think these are two tensions that are really hard for us to hold together in our lives. We, we, we often go one way or the other. We either go against our obligations, against our family, against our com- larger community. We want to build our identity in rebellion that we think life is, is found in not being attached to anyone and having the freedom to do whatever we want whenever we want. As long as I'm not tied down to a relationship, a job, place, I'll be free. Or or we think the opposite. We think life is found in meeting all the expectations of others, completely submitting to them. If If I can just do everything my parents want, I'll be happy. If I can just be a good and responsible and moral and hardworking person in my community, then then people will look up to me if I'm smart enough or funny enough to keep people interested and, and want to spend time with me, then, then life will be really great. But, but neither of these mindsets work. And in Jesus' interaction with his parents, he's showing us another way. I mean, think about Jesus' ministry, all the pressures he had to deal with, the, the religious leaders, the very people who should have recognized him as the Messiah, or the disciples who misunderstood him, who constantly were seeking their own glory and ultimately abandoned them. He bared with all of them, especially the disciples. He continued to love them. He didn't detach from them. How did he do all that? It wasn't just because of his divine nature that just gave him this supernatural patience. Jesus did this because in his human nature, his identity was so rooted in God the Father that he was able to remain connected to his family, to his friends, to even his enemies, and yet not be driven by their anxieties, by their concerns. His worth, his value, his self-confidence came from his identity as the Son of God. He's really the epitome of what uh, the therapist Edwin Friedman calls a non-anxious presence. Jesus, even in his younger years, in his perfect humanity, had perfect fellowship with the Father and had this identity that superseded all other relationships and put those other relationships in their proper place. 
So he didn't need to do everything his parents said, but he also didn't need to rebel against them. He would love and serve and obey them while not being controlled by their fears and expectations. Isn't this what we're all looking for? A a way to be secure and attached to others, but but not enslaved to them, to their demands, to their expectations, to, to be close and connected, but to still be ourselves, to still be differentiated. Would you not love, probably even now, I feel like this never goes away, to be freed from your parents' expectations, but at the same time, love and honor them. Would you not love to just be freed from trying to be what others think you should be, but still be in deep community with others and consider what they think and consider their wisdom? Would you not love to be freed from the expectations of your work or your schooling, but still work hard, but still learn and grow? And not just check out. The good news is Jesus is not just showing off his own unique psychological stability here. He came to give us access to the same strength and peace. Jesus was born. He lived a life of perfect obedience with his father, even as a child. And died on the cross, not only to forgive our sins, but to give us access to this same secure relationship with the father. So Luke, he not only wants us to be shocked by Jesus' identity, to see the security of Jesus' identity, but ultimately to come and share in it. And that's our last point this morning, the sharing of Jesus' identity. Again, the question we started with, why, why this story of all stories? I mean, we find out at the end that this is one of those moments that Mary treasured up in her heart. And this is probably where Luke got the story from Mary herself. But I think Luke highlights this story because it really is the beginning of this fountain of the revelation of the fatherhood of God that flows through Jesus's ministry like a river. Again and again, Jesus will blow people's minds by calling God Father. He uses this language of Father to refer to God around 40 more times in Luke. He teaches us to pray to our Heavenly Father. He he tells stories about the kingdom of God that depict God as a loving, merciful Father that's running towards his rebellious children in love. The first words in Luke's gospel that Jesus utters are about his Father, what we've just read here. But his last words to his disciples after his resurrection and before his ascension are, Behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. Jesus is not only rooted in his identity as the Son of God. He's inviting us to enter into that same identity. He died for our sins that we might receive the promise of the Father. And again, this this is another shocking thing about God's revelation of himself in Jesus. The fact that we can be adopted into God's family 
too, that we can call God Father. In Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 through 7, we see Paul making this reality so explicit. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God sent the Spirit of his Son into our heart, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. J.I. Packer, uh, in his really excellent book, Knowing God, if you haven't read it, add that to the top of your list. He writes this, If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child, of having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship, and prayers, and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. For everything that Christ taught, everything that makes the New Testament new and better than the old, everything that is distinctively Christian is summed up in the knowledge of the fatherhood of God the Father. Do you think of God as your father? Or, or is there a part of you that just finds that a little uncomfortable, uh, a little too personal? You're good with the idea of God. You definitely think there's an all-powerful creator out there who made everything and wants us to be good and moral people, but my father? I've actually known people who, will, when they pray, they use the phrase Father God repeatedly or even more extreme, calling God daddy, which even part of me in the past would, would kind of cringe at that. That's, that's a little weird, maybe a little, little too intimate. But I think they may have understood something about God better than I did in that moment. Because that's exactly what Abba means. It's this intimate, personal address of a child to their father. And this is what we need. The way to find a secure identity that frees us to love others without needing their approval is found in knowing the fatherhood of God through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let me close with this illustration. Uh, Back back in uh, 2001, right after the 9-11 attacks, uh, something you, you, many of you may remember better than me, uh, Congress had to vote on whether or not to allow the president to single-handedly authorize war, which the Constitution doesn't allow for. And, and one congresswoman, Barbara Lee, was really agonizing over how to vote. And there was a lot of pressure to vote for yes, vote yes, even from her own party, they really wanted it to be a unanimous vote. However, ultimately she decided to vote against the war authorization. Uh, And you can watch her speech to Congress online explaining why she voted this way. And it's very clear she loves her country. She wants it to be protected, but 
In that moment, her conscience convinced her that this, this really rash action maybe wasn't wise, that they, they needed to take some time to think through what the appropriate response was to those events. And at the end of the day, the House vote was 420 to 1, and the Senate vote was 98 to 0. And after voting, as you could imagine, she received a lot of hate. She received so many death threats uh, that for a time she had a police detail protecting her. People called her a terrorist and a traitor. Uh, She also received thousands of letters of opposition, uh, even saying terrible things like she should have died in the two towers. But she stood firm. She, She never wavered on that vote. How did she do that? 420 to 1. Well, right after that vote, Congresswoman Lee, she received a call from her father, who was a retired lieutenant colonel who'd fought in World War II in Korea. And she essentially said to her daughter, I'm proud of you. That was enough to keep her standing firm. I know not all of us necessarily have an earthly father that we can count on to to call us when we find the, the pressure of life closing in on us and to tell us, I'm proud of you. And if that's the case for you this morning, I'm sorry to hear that and I mourn that with you. But even if that is the case for you, Jesus is inviting us to hear a much more powerful and weighty voice of our Heavenly Father saying, I'm proud of you. When you feel alone and you feel as if the rest of the world is having the time of their life, serving themselves, doing whatever they want, I'm proud of you. When you feel like you've really messed up, you've made bad choices, you're not where you're supposed to be in life, but you're still seeking the Father, I'm proud of you. What Barbara Lee experienced was just a taste of what every Christian can know in Christ. God the Father looks at all of those who place their faith in Jesus, and he sees the perfect, spotless righteousness of Christ. He's not dissecting our faults, looking for all the little ways we've gone wrong, constantly pointing out how we could do better. He's saying again and again, I'm proud of you. And it's outrageous because we know our defects and our shortcomings. They're so loud and obvious to us. We're constantly tempted to second-guess ourselves. And again, this is why Jesus had to die for our sins. It is outrageous for sinners like us to hear that voice of the Father. And so for that to happen, Jesus had to experience the rejection. He had to experience the humiliation of the death of the cross to be separated from the Father's love in his human nature for that moment on the cross so that we might hear, I'm proud of you. And that's the invitation this morning for us to enter more deeply into this reality of the gospel, and for anyone who hasn't yet to repent, to believe, to put their hope in Jesus, to lay down your busy pride, stop finding your hope in meeting others' expectations, 
and see the Father's love for you in Jesus. Let me close us in prayer. Father, we thank you for this passage, for this beautiful picture we get of Jesus' intimate relationship with you. For Jesus' perfect life on our behalf that he came to redeem our bodies, to redeem our minds, to redeem our souls. We praise you that you have invited us into this, that, that you gave your only son so that we might become your sons too. And so we ask that you might help us to enter deeply into this reality, that as we more and more hear your voice, we might become the kind of people who can love others well, who can serve others well, who aren't driven just to please everyone, but are driven to truly do what's good and right for others. And we'll glorify you. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing our hymn of response, hymn 229.